You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Venezuela sustains power outages and the regime blames hackers and wreckers. The opposition says it's all due to the regime's corruption, incompetence, and neglect. Citrix loses business documents in what might have been an Iranian espionage operation. Huawei's suit against the U.S. gets some official cheering from Beijing. The U.S. warns against Chinese information operations. And Russian troll farmers turn to amplification. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, March 11, 2019. Venezuela, since the middle of last week, has suffered from an ongoing series of power grid failures. The widespread blackouts, President Nicolas Maduro told supporters Saturday, had been largely fixed. That apparently is incorrect, as reports of continued power outages continue. But the cause the current regime assigns the blackouts is interesting. President Maduro, the legitimacy of whose government is disputed by the country's National Assembly, has blamed them on U.S. cyber attacks, aided and abetted with sabotage committed by internal wreckers. The opposition to Maduro and the Chavista regime, on the other hand, blames corruption, incompetence, and deteriorating infrastructure. Most outside observers, including the states belonging to the Lima Group, seem to think that the opposition probably has it right. The Lima Group, formed in 2017, represents a hemispheric attempt to manage a peaceful resolution to the crisis in Venezuela. Its members currently include Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Guyana, Honduras, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, and St. Lucia. The Lima Group has recognized the interim presidency declared by the National Assembly of Juan Guaido. While a cyber attack is surely a possibility, it seems unlikely. The specific allegation, evidence for which Maduro's regime says it intends at some point to refer to the U.N., is that U.S. cyber operators induced generator failure at the Guri Hydroelectric Dam, and the wreckers did it too. Venezuela's failing state has a history of irregular power delivery, although four days is a long stretch even by recent standards. It's unlikely in the extreme that the blackouts have any causes beyond what the opposition has called out, corruption, incompetence, and collapsing infrastructure. The situation is a tragic one. The opposition says that the Maduro regime is responsible for deaths that have occurred as power failed in hospitals and other critical installations. For its part, the Maduro regime denies that any deaths have occurred and that in any case the opposition is responsible for them. We think this story's worth your attention, however, not mainly for its political or humanitarian dimension, as important as those are, but because it illustrates two recurring issues we see where cyber matters intersect or at least accompany kinetic effects. 
First, it's a sad illustration of why critical infrastructure is so critical. A developed country is highly vulnerable to long-term disruption of power distribution. Most developed countries can cope with the sorts of shorter blackouts caused by, for example, storms. But extended outages or repeated instances of shorter outages have much more serious effects that cascade across a nation's life. Thus, if one were inclined to dismiss concerns about the possibility of cyber attacks on power generation and distribution as idle alarmism, think of what Venezuela is suffering now. That it's almost certainly not the result of sabotage or hacking is beside the point. Look at the effects and consider the possibility. In the language of risk management, hacking down a power grid may be a relatively low probability event, but it's a high consequence one. In this context, it's worth mentioning that there are recent warnings that Triton malware is still circulating, possibly in new forms. That attack code was used against petrochemical plants, but the principle remains the same. Second, as one looks at the Maduro regime's claims and the opposition's counterclaims, one sees an information operation in progress. It seems the opposition's evidence is far stronger. And we'd be willing to bet that the regime won't be able to produce any of the evidence of hacking it says it's going to bring to the UN. From this hack that wasn't, it's almost pleasant to turn to a hack that was. Although it too is a misfortune, it's not accompanied by the degree of suffering Venezuela is undergoing this week. Citrix, the software company whose offerings, particularly in remote work solutions, have become familiar in both the private and public sector, disclosed Friday that it had sustained a data breach. Probably accomplished through a password spraying attack, the FBI has the matter under investigation, and Citrix is working to contain and mitigate the consequences of the breach. Some six terabytes of what are being called business documents were accessed by the attackers. Researchers at the firm ReSecurity think the actor responsible was Iran's Iridium Group, generally thought to be a state-sponsored espionage unit. Citrix is preparing various forms of assistance for and disclosure to its customers. U.S. authorities continue to warn of the threat of both Chinese penetration of infrastructure and of Beijing's attempts at influence operations. U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton says that Manchurian chips are a possibility and a good reason to keep Chinese hardware out of infrastructure. For you kids who are younger than Mr. Bolton. Manchurian Chips is an allusion to the 1962 movie *The Manchurian Candidate*, in which the son of a prominent American political family was brainwashed during captivity in Korea to become an assassin, deployed and triggered under the control of Red China, and that, of course, is not what you want in your 5G devices. Much of the concern over hardware centers on manufacturer Huawei, currently suing the U.S. government in federal court with the hearty approval of the Chinese Foreign Ministry. Huawei's smaller rival ZTE faces similar suspicion, but receives less strong, overt official support from Beijing. ZTE's contract to provide maintenance to Telefonica Deutschland will not be renewed when it ends. Observers note that there have been complaints about the quality of service, although Telefonica did not mention these in its announcement. Other observers see the end of the contract as aligning with Western skittishness. Over the security implications of relying on Chinese hardware. To return to U.S. National Security Advisor Bolton, in the course of remarks in which he alluded to Manchurian chips, he devoted considerable attention to what he called Chinese attempts at influence operations, conducted mostly via contacts in universities and think tanks. 
This echoes much of what we heard at RSA. China is now spoken of as an information op threat along with Russia. Not that the Russian troll farms have been idle. Bloomberg reports that Russian trolling may have turned to amplification of existing memes, the better to evade hunts for inauthenticity. So you draw less attention to yourself, presumably, if you simply like or thumbs up someone else's opinion that, say, the Kree were playing Captain Marvel for a sucker when they got her to fight with the Skrell, or something like that. And besides, catfish are cheap. When the House of Zuckerberg whacks down a bunch of trolls, the Trollmasters of St. Petersburg just conjure up another lot. It's not quite like the broom in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, because every whacked hashtag doesn't splinter into ten new memes. But you get the point. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Daniel, it's great to have you back. Um, we wanted to talk today about cyber design and the importance of that. But why don't we start off with some descriptive stuff here? What are we talking about when we say cyber design? This has uh, really come from uh, some of the work that I've been doing with uh, uh, my multidisciplinary PhD students who have uh, working in uh, international relations and uh, and technology areas, uh, and they one of the things they've been looking at is uh, the idea of uh, military design, and this is really an emergent movement um, 
trying to understand how innovation can actually flow through military organizations to, to really get to the frontline um, warfighters. Um, and the interesting thing there is they, they're really incorporating um, design methodologies, so like human-centered design, uh, into trying to understand the, the needs and the problems of the, the, the frontline uh, warfighters. Uh, and it got me to thinking about the, the types of challenges that we have in cybersecurity uh, in terms of thinking, how do we actually design uh, cybersecurity products and, and services, and how do we design the actual systems? And I was reflecting on a lot of my own practice and thinking that actually well, a lot of the stuff that we do is really taking existing products and services and, and taking more of an architectural approach. How do we combine these things together to, uh, to provide a, a secure solution without really thinking about the kind of design methodologies that sit behind that? So I'm really interested to understand how things like human-centered design and other design methodologies can really benefit in the very early stages of thinking about how we address cybersecurity solutions. Yeah, it's really an interesting thing. I mean, I think about even with things like password managers, where the less effort required, the more likely I am to use that password manager on a regular basis. And that's certainly true. I mean, there's been a lot of usability kind of work um, done by colleagues such as Angela Sass and others that are around thinking about how security and usability can go hand in hand. And there's a very famous uh, piece of academic work called uh, Why Johnny Can't Encrypt, looking at um, why people don't use, a long time ago, why don't people use uh, PGP encryption for email. Mm. Um, but one of the interesting things about a lot of the design methodologies, it really challenges whether we're asking the right questions. So uh, one of the interesting things that's come from, my, come from my discussions is this idea that actually who is the user of security? Now, oftentimes we think it's actually the people that are buying security. But equally, we could turn that question around in its head and say that the attackers are really the users of security. And what we need to be doing is thinking about how we design, uh, how do we design for, for the attackers to make it harder for them rather than just being easier for the users. So it's this idea that actually design thinking for this space can actually open up new avenues of conversation and discussion around actually what are better cybersecurity solutions rather than just going, well, these are the components that we have and how can we put them together to produce a cybersecurity solution? Well, let's dig into that some. When you say designing for the attackers, I mean, what would be exposed to them? How would design uh, affect what they're up to? Arguably, the, 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 the attackers are the ones that are actually consuming the security solutions on a day-to-day -day basis. They are trying to consume the activities of the firewall in terms of what it actually is doing, for example, in terms of protecting and preventing uh, malicious traffic going through it. So when we're thinking about designing an overall solution, are we actually thinking about how the attacker might approach this particular problem? Um, uh, how the attacker might actually try and breach the security protections that we put in place. And then it's almost, in some ways, the reverse. We don't want to make it usable for, for, the, design, uh, for, the, uh, for the attacker. And so that changes the nature of the conversations we have. It changes the, kind of the, the, the philosophical nature of, uh, of, of how we're designing. And I think it's important to, to think about the attacker, uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, as, as really the root of a lot of the, the cybersecurity uh, activities that we undertake in so that we can actually prevent uh, escalations in attacks. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder, too, what sort of competitive advantage uh, companies who focus on this, uh, on the importance of design, uh, rather than just what's under the hood, or, or I guess in addition to what's under the hood, well, that could be an advantage for them. Certainly. I mean, you, you have to just look at uh, classic examples like Apple uh, and Microsoft and, and, and sort of the various 
corporate wars at that level and uh, Apple focused heavily on the the idea of design and design thinking and human-centered design and we're seeing other uh, large corporates really pushing this idea of uh, design thinking as a way to uh, help to solve some of the more challenging and radical problems that we're seeing in computer science more generally not just cybersecurity. I think it's really important to start that conversation much earlier and really start to use design thinking and design methodologies to challenge some of the assumptions that we're making around the technologies that we're using, the attackers and the way they're approaching us, and then also the users and the way they're defending. Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.